and they're listening to it with modern ears. They're watching a Netflix program and then coming to the theater. And the moment those two have a giant gulf between them is the moment that people go, opera's this thing you have to apologize for and just say it's it's like that one relative that sits in a corner during the holidays and whatever they say, you just need to ignore. I don't think opera should be that. And I think that careful repurposing, revising, or redrafting completely of the language is really critical. Welcome to the East Anchorage Book Club. I'm your host, Andrew Gray. The purpose of this podcast is to tell the stories of Alaskans of interest and importance. Today, our guest is the new general director of Anchorage Opera, Ben Robinson. Ben was the stage director for the recent production of Donizetti's The Elixir of Love, and we will talk about the bold choices he made with that production. We will also discuss Anchorage Opera's upcoming production of Scalia Ginsburg, which explores the friendship between the U.S. Supreme Court Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia. Besides being the general director of Anchorage Opera, Ben is also the artistic director of Opera Ithaca in New York and Raven Moore Opera in New Hampshire. He is the managing director of Lyric Fest in Philadelphia. Opera News called his Julia Child-inspired Hansel and Gretel film Moving and Visually Daring. That film joined the Opera Philadelphia channel and was streamed last summer in a series of outdoor events. His production of Johnny Skiki for Opera Ithaca in 2020 was described by Opera Magazine as, quote, the deftest use of COVID-era technology as part of modern operatic reality. Ben Robinson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Great to meet you. Where did you grow up? Raleigh, North Carolina. But my family lives in Michigan. And right now, and for the time being, we're actually splitting our time between Pennsylvania and um, Alaska. So I'm actually in Pennsylvania today. And I'm going to a conference tomorrow and then heading back to Anchorage on Monday. To start getting ready for Scalia Ginsburg? Yes. Although even when we aren't imminently doing shows, I'm in Anchorage most of the time. That's interesting. I wondered when I read your bio, you've been very involved with Opera Ithaca. And I didn't know how it worked for directors of operas companies, how you divide your time and where you make your home? That's a great question. I make my home in my car. And what's always been nice about being a traveling artist is the opportunity to experience different places for longer than just the average quick vacation visit. I actually started coming up to Anchorage in 2011 as a singer and was in Anchorage five different times as a singer before ever even being considered for the current job that I have. What's been nice this year is that this place that had always felt like dabbling in home a month at a time here and there really does get to be home. My husband and I got a place in Bootlegger's Cove, and we just love Anchorage. What does your husband do? He just finished his doctorate in voice performance. And right now he's um, still teaching at UAA. He's an adjunct voice teacher there, but he's an active singer and he's sung several roles at Anchorage Opera. And he's all over the place. He has had an international singing career and is plenty busy on his own. When did you start getting interested in opera? Oh, I was one of those weird kids who liked it in high school. I had always thought I'd be interested in musical theater or something like that. And I had a voice teacher, a wonderful teacher, Dr. Vanna. I hope Dr. Vanna gets to listen to this because she said, you have a voice that, sure, you can sing musical theater, but you have a voice that could really handle classical music. And I am not going to tell you exactly what to do, but I think you should train in a way that gives you the greatest amount of flexibility. At the time, I didn't really know heck of a lot about opera, but I tried to get into it, and I found out that I really liked it. I went to school to study opera specifically. It was just one of those things that, that spoke to me. 
Can you explain what the difference is between opera and musical theater? That's a question I get a lot. And I think there's some obvious answers to it. And I think there's some non-obvious answers. And so the obvious ones, first of all, is I think that, you know, right now, especially there's a pretty big gulf between commercial Broadway musicals versus opera. And, you know, is opera all the way sung through? Yes. But sometimes opera has dialogue in it, like Carmen or the Magic Flute. Are musicals all the way sung through? Not often, but then there's something like Rent or something like the light in the piazza. And when you look at it historically, Jacques Offenbach has been credited with coming up with operetta. And that took comic opera to an audience that found new joy in going to the theater. It was the big commercial thing that was awesome and new. And when you look at how that branched into Gilbert and Sullivan or Sigmund Romberg in the United States and how those pieces ultimately led to the nascent Broadway when New York really started coming into its own as this place that was collecting dance and um, popular music. So I see it as things that are all rooted in the same thing. I honestly don't think that the gulf should be that big. And yet, I feel like opera has been treated as this thing that's gathering dust and thus should be like viewed behind glass or in this kind of museum state, whereas musical theater is this living, breathing, organic organism that is a multi-billion dollar industry in this country. One way that... I've thought about it is that in musicals, people tend to wear microphones and in opera, they don't. And I know that's not always true. There's historically some very loud musical theater singers like Ethel Merman. But in general, if you go to see a musical at the Anchorage Performing Arts Center, those people will be wearing microphones. But if you go to see the opera, opera singers are proud that they don't wear microphones and they sing with a full orchestra. I think it's a great difference. Again, there's always crossover. Like I've been in operas where I had to wear a mic and I've been in musicals where I didn't. But you are right that the general operating status for both is that musicals typically amplified, opera typically not. One of the reasons is that when a musical, again, it's like the commercialization of it. Our Anchorage Opera is a nonprofit. I like to joke that we put the non in nonprofit, but typically we never make money on a show, unfortunately. Whereas when Broadway Alaska comes to town, it's banking on selling those seats and making money off of those productions. Um, and so it's a different model. A typical Broadway show, there are eight performances a week. And that requires a different kind of singing and a reliance on electronic amplification to really help make sure that the singers' voices can keep doing that so much. Of course, there's differences in style, too. And um, there's a lot of electronic instruments that are added in Broadway musicals and massive amplification there for theaters that weren't always necessarily carved out to be the most acoustic, acoustically stunning places in the world. But better for sight lines or or whatever. I think personally that when I talk about the pure musicality of opera, it's something that is completely rooted in being able to go and see a singer without any sort of mechanical assistance or electronic assistance in any way, be able to use the given gift of physics to reach an audience over a very large orchestra with just one solo voice and a pair of vocal folds that are five-eighths of an inch long each. It's interesting that you say that because I saw your production of The Elixir of Love, the Domizetti opera that was at the PAC in October. And you incorporate a lot of audiovisual effects and it was super interesting. I just hats off. It was really the best opera I have ever seen at Anchorage Opera in terms of the 
interpretation being so incredibly interesting and fun to watch. I thank you. I had great fun with it. The entire company had a great time putting it together. This addresses exactly what my ethos with opera is, which is that I have been to the opera. I've stung in places without throwing anybody else under the bus, because I think this is more of a systemic thing. I got really tired of appearing in performances that I thought were merely trying to recreate the standard or the past. There's a place for that, for sure, especially for these meticulously crafted, like the Gilded Age. On HBO. Or something like like that, where the costume budget's likely in the millions, and you are getting to really see that level of like research and nuance that goes into something like that. But for the vast majority of opera companies, certainly in the United States, where we don't have government subsidies that are greatly supporting the artistic work that we do, we're not really able to have that kind of budget to throw that level of, oh my gosh, we're going to create something that's so perfect that's been so meticulously researched that it's just going to be fabulous like that so to my end i don't think we should be trying to throw the audience a lesser than version of traditional it's very much our duty as stewards of the art form if i can call myself that to constantly think of new ways that the art form can stay relevant and new and can surprise the audience. Because honestly, Broadway's producing tons of stuff that's new every year. And there's an audience that is really stimulated by what the next best thing is. And that same audience will come and say, I have seen La Boheme before. And then throw in, I've seen Rent too. It's the same story. And so why do I need to invest myself? I think it's the duty of opera these days to at least go back to the drawing board and whether or not you end up telling a tale that is somewhat traditional, which gives me hives every time I say that, or if it is something that's completely reimagined from the ground up, it's It has to be honest to the work, but I think it's our duty to go and try to figure out how that can be done so that we can get people as excited about coming to the opera as they might be about going to see a new movie or a new musical or a new play. I had a very low bar for going to see the Elixir of Love. I've sung in a Donizetti opera before. Donizetti was famous for writing operas very fast there's a lot of similarity in, in in the music, and I was prepared for something really boring. What you did was updating it to be like a reality television show about making of a soap opera. It felt so current, and it fits so perfectly. And one of the things that you did is you changed the lyrics slightly a couple of times to make it very current. And from reading reviews of other productions of other operas that you've done, I know that's something you've done before. Where did you get the idea of actually changing the words from the original libretto? And did you think you were allowed to? That's a great question. So the very first job that I ever had where I was allowed to direct a show and cast my two cents over the direction of an opera company was a small company called Raylan Moore Opera in New Hampshire. I took the company over at a time that it was having some really hard times financially. And so we were really tasked with coming up with solutions for how to present in a sustainable way that checked off boxes for the audience that we had. At the time, that company had a mandate that they would only produce operas written in English. And the problem with that, there's a lot of companies, you know, Opera St. Louis is one of the premier festivals in the world that has a mandate to produce in English. English National Opera produces operas in English. 
in Germany, which the Germans just love opera. And in most of the regional houses, opera is produced in German, regardless of the original language. It's not too strange. The wrinkle is that you either have to commission something or you have to use one of the existing English translations, many of which were written in the 40s when the publishers were first coming out with their American versions of things. And so what you end up with is a lot of really dated things and talk about like letting things gather dust and making a diorama of opera. It just doesn't sit well with the audience. So very quickly, I realized that something needed to be done on that front. And I was far from the only person doing that. But that led to this path where I started writing my own English translations for a whole bunch of pieces. What I found, I was very nervous about it because I thought, besides some performer credits at that point, I was like, who am I to make a choice like this? And certainly the choices and the artistic chances I took on some of this was based off of learning from how the audience responded to it. But my first project that I ever did was Verdi's Macbeth. And what was interesting about it was that I had the the great chance to be boosted by Shakespeare along the way, because a lot of it was simply just going back to the Shakespeare and finding out a way to make that work with Verdi's rhythms. And... It was a great training exercise, and it showed me that the librettist used to be on par with the composer. It used to be, oh, this is a Mozart and Da Ponte opera. In our lifetime, that's definitely not the case. The music is timeless, but the words aren't always timeless. We see tons of reproductions of Shakespeare. Shakespeare got the words right. But we don't see a ton of reproductions of plays from like the 19th century that aren't by the masters. I might be struck down by a thunderbolt any second, but the music to me is sacred. The intent of the plot and the structure of the story is sacred. The delivery and order of the words is subservient to those couple of things. It also has helped deal with the beneficial byproducts has been, yes, opera is a Eurocentric tradition that's written by a lot of like old white dead people. Not old dead people, but old dead men. They're all they're all dead white men. Yes. And in this age where we just simply need to be representing so many more things than that. There is a chance to really take a look at these words, to wrestle with a lot of the demons that are inherent in a lot of these pieces. Elixir is very demon-free. There's not really any sort of like bogeys in the original libretto where you're like, ooh, we've got to really rethink this or cut this. But there are plenty of operas. The Magic Flute, Nabucco, L'Italiana in Algeri, Madama Butterfly, where you have to be really cognizant about how the piece is presented and careful with how the words hit the audience, because that's going to be how they accept it. And they're listening to it with modern ears. They're watching a Netflix program and then coming to the theater. And the moment those two have a giant gulf between them is the moment that people go, opera is this thing you have to apologize for and just say, it's, it's like that one relative that sits in a corner during the holidays and whatever they say, you just need to ignore. I don't think opera should be that. And I think that careful repurposing, revising, or redrafting completely of the language is really critical. I have two things. One is that in America, where opera has in general been performed in the original language, we are taught to focus on the music, not the lyrics, not the story. I've been to many performances where I didn't pay attention to the libretto at all. I I didn't really care about the story. I was really there to listen to the music, and I don't think I'm alone there. And I think there's a pitfall in 
someone like me listening to the operas in English because I literally think this is ridiculous. This is so stupid. What a stupid story. If you think about Nessun Dorma and no one's sleeping tonight because we're all going to solve a riddle or whatever yeah. it is. No, people around the world listen to that aria. And they are not thinking about staying up tonight to solve a riddle. No. no one cares what the words are. And actually, there's value in being completely separate from the meaning of the words. And I think you're, you're making one of my favorite points to illustrate when I'm ever talking about this, which is that I've translated a lot of Puccini. And not necessarily for new translations that I've written, but just simply to direct Puccini or to sing it. and. It's amazing how pedestrian it is. It's mostly in vernacular Italian, unlike if you went with a Rossini libretto or a Donizetti or a Mozart libretto or something like that, where like the average Italian in Florence might say, this is a little bit weird or freaky. But Puccini, is, it's this kind of common everyday language. So when Mimi in La Boheme says... When the thaw comes in April and I'm kissed the first time, it's it sounds really dumb if you just said that and recited it as part of a play. But all of a sudden, Puccini brings in all the strings and you get and the whole orchestra is swirling and building. Like you said, no one cares. No one cares. No one's looking at the super titles at that point. Everybody's being swept away. The art of Puccini is that it's so transcendent. It could be nothing. Some of my favorite excerpts of Puccini are just the places where his interludes, where there's no text. And he just is such an expressive composer that you could close your eyes, never see what's going on stage, but have a feeling of exactly where you are, and you could assign your own drama to that. The second thing I wanted to say was about the cultural pitfalls in opera. Speaking of Puccini, Turandot, and Madame Butterfly, as Turandot being in China, and Madame Butterfly being in Japan, and trying to navigate Puccini's understanding of what is Asian. But I get, I think even more problematic is thinking about Aida and the use of blackface for decades, really not that long ago, where it was expected that if you had a white woman portraying Aida, that she would do blackface. After no one else was doing blackface, and we still had some Aidas in blackface. I think we did Otello, Verdi's Otello, we would blackface Otello. But then alternatively, just as problematic as saying, oh, you're an African-American soprano? When are you going to sing Aida? That's what they have to do. The tokenization of performers versus just the unthinkable on minstrelsy on the part of opera, which is disgusting. And talk about, I am of the mindset that opera is not going anywhere fast. Everybody's been calling for opera's demise for years and years. It's been around for over 400 years now, and I think that there's incredible power and strength in it. But I think that there is no surer path than to dig in to this, what is a racist, misogynistic past. That said, I think that there is great potential in building community and collaboration around addressing the problems head on 
rather than saying, oh, let's excise these pieces from repertoire and just stuff them into a box and hope they don't bother anybody until they're safe to bring out again or something like that. I I think Butterfly is one of the greatest works of all time. I think it was certainly Puccini's. It's the work that Puccini said was his favorite. And to me, it's a piece where the white American is, for once, the villain. Are there problems that are inherent if we don't have an entirely Japanese cast to play the Japanese characters? I think it's something that has to be addressed. There's a lot of questions afoot in general. It it just came from hearing almost 300 singers in New York a few weeks ago. And recently, I've heard like Korean singers who would be beautiful as Chok Chosan. But it's not a Korean story. It's a Japanese story. And it's the same thing. Okay, yeah, I'd love to do Aida. I've always joked that Aida is like a chamber opera with elephants. It's a love story. It's about what Verdi did best, which is like political thriller conflict. I don't really think you can take it out of Egypt and Ethiopia. I don't think that all of a sudden that there's a great way for Amneris. We're talking about cultural appropriation on top of cultural appropriation. And am I sure what all the answers are for it? Absolutely not. And I think that a lot of the answers have to come from the people that have been marginalized and how they feel about seeing the opera and from the conclusions that the director is making while contextualizing the opera. I've, I just directed L'Italiana in Algeri last June, and it's a piece that talks about the Italians are the saviors. There's this sort of white... The Rossini opera? Rossini. Yeah, early 19th century. Early 19th century Rossini comedy. It's a brilliant opera. But the whole idea is that you have this bumbling... Algerian, who might also be Turkish. And the big idea is that it's non-Christian, non-white. That's the story that it's trying to tell. And yet, if you're looking at it from the grander context of opera dramaturgy, it's really the Barber of Seville in North African drag or something like that. And... The point of the piece is not to highlight cultural differences. The point of the piece was for Rossini to write another comedy, but not have it also be set in Spain, like Barbara Epsilon. And so with the contextualization of something like that, all of a sudden you have these like white slaves that need to be freed. And it's, it's just like bogeys left and right. Like, how are you going to like in any way present the actual translation of this piece to the audience and either have them not just get up and walk out of the theater because they're disgusted or just not grow increasingly disengaged because they're feeling more and more distant from what the actual meaning of the piece is. My solution to this, again, I'm not saying that it's right, but what I'll say is the piece is dependent on highlighting what the social strata is. So there needs to be people that are in charge. There need to be people that are contextualized in a certain way. But I said the whole thing on a cruise ship. It's a comedy. We all know what this whole cruise thing is. Mustafa, the bumbling Algerian or whatever he's supposed to be, ends up being a really great metaphor for the ultra one percenter who is able to do whatever he wants to do and get away with it because he doesn't have anybody checking him because of his material wealth. And then rather than there being slaves on the ship, it's all of a sudden it makes a lot of sense that there is like a crew on this ship. And we see that this crew is mistreated not because of their status or who they are or where they were born, but simply because there's this entitlement that comes from these very wealthy people who are behaving badly aboard a ship. 
And so it was for me an opportunity to directly address a challenging piece that has so much to like, but is in this 2024 context impossible to present without a pretty major overhaul. I was wondering about, I don't know if you saw it, I tried to find it on Instagram just now, and I couldn't find the post. It was a clip of a production of Turandot, I believe happening at the Rome Opera. It was in Questa Regia, the opening of Act Two. Turandot is singing, and they had an enormous photo of a small child that looked like maybe in Gaza. And it was a viral post because people were so angry. People going off on reinterpretation of opera and going too far and trying to make something about something that it's not. And of course, I can't find the post, which means it may have been taken down, but it was interesting. Oh, you know what? And it was Sandra Rod- Rodanovsky was singing Turandot. It's a big deal because it was her first Turandot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's- I, they're directors and there's people in this business that try to use the medium to shock people too. And then call that mm-hmm. like artistic. Right. The thing that I try to remember when it comes to presenting anything new is that ultimately opera is entertainment. Mm. You have a choice as an audience member to purchase a ticket to the opera and commit two to three hours to see the average length thing. You could go see Oppenheimer, which is about the same. Just saw it. It was brilliant. You could go see a Broadway show. You could go to Cyrano's and see a great show. You could go to the symphony and see a great show. And we all have to sort of like live in the same ecosystem. But when it comes down to it, it's all entertainment. Is there a time and a place to make a statement that's using a photo of a Gazan child? For my taste right now, no. I don't think we have any perspective on what is a very current horrible crisis in this world. So doing something simply to be provocative, I don't think is interesting, new, or entertaining. I'm not sure that opera is the medium always to have something like that be addressed. Grandot is a piece that tackles many very difficult issues and does so with an incredible score and and so many things. But you're not going to be able to like bend something to make a point that is too far from where it was centered in the first place. And I feel like if there's anything I've, I've tried to do and will at least make a pact to always try to do is keep any sort of adaptation or interpretation rooted in what the core power of the work is. Elixir of Love is a fun and fluffy piece. The moment that I try to say something about world peace and elixir of love, I'm using the wrong tool to do that. And should it hit you emotionally? Should una furtiva lagrima at the end of Act Two really make the whole audience go? And then really feel for this bumbling guy who's just been down in his luck? Absolutely it should. But I don't know. I don't think that we're going to solve world peace with a production of The Elixir of Love. I want to bounce back to your journey as a performer and your decision to become a director. And correct me if I'm wrong here. I just feel like if a a young singer becomes a director it's like those who can't do teach it's like those who can't make it direct and have people said that to you and how do you navigate that people said everything to me so at this point most of it's not that new i always felt that as i was singing i was like the singing part of this feels hard the drama part of it doesn't like i always felt like okay everybody has like a balance of gifts that they're given There's a lot to 
existing in this industry somehow as an artist and working towards something. I don't look back on any of years and years of torment, torture, hard work, joy, great shows, great experiences, singing on stage and think, oh, that wasn't worth it. But I do look back and think I didn't quite know it at the time, but I was finding greater comfort and the sort of true place where I needed to be artistically while I was exploring this other thing. Another really big moment came for me. I go back to this Macbeth. One of the first larger shows that I'd ever directed. And was it your first show? It was not the first show I'd ever directed. That was a production of Johnny Skeetke, which a one act short, a one one act short. There's so much Puccini where you just try to stay out of the way of the Puccini and do what's in the score and magic strikes. Um, but this Macbeth thing was quite different. And I was fortunate enough that I had a wonderful friend. Her name's Alexandra Lucian. And she's, she had become quite the star. She's singing Brunhilde with Virginia Opera this last year. Here's a little taste of Alexandra Lucian singing a bit of Brunhilde from this last year. just one of those singers that has a gigantic, magnetic, beautiful voice. We met as singers. And for her, the singing always seemed easy. She works really hard for it. So maybe she doesn't feel that way. But to me, I was like, she just makes this all seem like a breeze. And so she was singing Lady Macbeth. And it was my first time ever directing her in a show. And I was still very actively pursuing singing at the time and and was enjoying enough of a career that I felt like I was at least in it. And she said, I love you as a singer. She was like, I am acknowledging that you're working hard towards something, but I also want to say something to you as a friend. I see you directing the show and putting this thought into what this show could be and maybe how it's different than how it's sometimes other otherwise done. And I see you in a different light. She was like, this is the artistic version of you that makes sense to me. And I never forgot that after she said that. And I am so glad that she did because I needed, I needed somebody to say something like that to me. You know, you don't always get somebody who's honest with you. You don't always get somebody who says, hey, this seems to be something that you really enjoy doing that you are good at doing. And the truth has just followed that. Um, I never had the career singing that I hoped to have. The moment I dipped my feet into directing and arts administration, all of a sudden I had the career that I'd always wanted. I work hard for it. I have had multiple jobs and juggle different things. And right now, live in two different states and it's not easy but every day feels exciting and it feels like i'm contributing something to the art form that i love that is significantly more than i could have contributed to it as a singer and that is significant to me and really special i'm just curious how old you were when you directed your first production? I'm turning 40 in May. And I directed my very first show in 2014. So this will be 10 years. Four is 10 years of me directing shows. And and I had dabbled. I had directed plays in high school and it had there was always like little ad hoc projects and things like that or things where I was like, oh, I 
not to be arrogant, but I know this show better than the director does. So I'm going to make a couple of heavy-handed suggestions here. And it it wasn't like it was completely non-parallel or whatever. But yeah, it's been 10 years of really focusing in increasingly on what the craft is and learning the parallel stuff that I needed to learn. Any career in the arts takes a little bit of luck and a little bit of things happening at the right time. And I was very fortunate that there were some key milestones that kind of either kept me in it long enough that something more exciting could happen or that kind of like bumper bowling pushes you in the right direction while not allowing you to completely fail. For that, incredibly grateful. And it's been a very circuitous journey, but it's never been short of really exciting for me. I assume that as someone who worked as a singer, you worked with some bad directors. Full disclosure, I've sung in the Estonian National Opera. I sang in the Samalina Festival in Finland. I've sung with Anchorage Opera. I've been in a few productions and I would say I've seen some very bad opera directors. I've been on the stage where I thought, I don't even think this director knows this plot very well. And yet they're the director. So I can only imagine that you've had similar experiences and that they must inform your approach to being a director. Absolutely. A few things. Without getting catty, it's complicated. Not everything I've ever done has been good. I, I feel like, okay, now I've, I've been around long enough that I've started to see, okay, this works in the room and this doesn't. Having a group of people do this is always going to look good and having a group of people do this is always going to be dicey or terrible. Not everybody gets a long enough runway to figure that all out. There's so many things that can go wrong. The music can go wrong. The orchestra can go wrong. The set can fall apart. There can be a big personality at this end of the room that just vehemently doesn't want to do what the person at the other end of the room wants to do. And in that sense, it's a minor miracle when anything gets done at all that's remotely respectable. And I'm a great believer in kindness. I'm a great believer that Everybody in the room should feel respected and should feel like they have an ownership stake in what's going on. I also feel that way for the audience should come in and feel like they have an ownership stake of Anchorage Opera and this is their opera and that they are seeing in some way or the other themselves reflected on stage. There is, I'll call it like assistant director-itis. That used to be the big way to break into directing in this country, especially. I have not ever been an assistant director. That is something I actually am like almost hesitant to say in something that's going to be published, but it's something that I'm alternatively horrified by and proud of. One is I'm horrified by it because I think there's a lot that I could learn about producing from people who have been in the business a lot longer working at much bigger budget places that have really interesting things that they could tell me. And from the other end of it, I've never had to sit there and duplicate somebody else's work and just manage what's going on stage. Um, or realize someone's crappy vision. Sure. And all of those things come true. And what I've observed in I think this is less so now. I think one is that there was a giant exodus of people in the pandemic that was unfortunate. But two, that the way that the business is running now is that the opera audience wants to see better stuff. And that is forcing people to just think about the entire wheel differently. But I was certainly in productions where I thought, this is being led by somebody who has not yet had the opportunity to really invest for themselves in this. I never had somebody that I hated. I don't always see ideas necessarily coming to the fore as much as stage management in that sense. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people that can create beautiful pictures on stage. A lighting designer can save any production, good or bad. Somebody can make a gorgeous collection of people on stage and can make the audience go home relatively happy. 
And for a lot of people who come to the opera, they're not necessarily looking for the wheel to be reinvented. They want to see a very traditional Carmen. They want to see peasant skirts and cigarettes and the yellow Spanish military outfit. And that's something that bores me and it makes me worry about longevity. But you know what? I will own my part of the problem as a chorus member in multiple companies. When I signed on for an opera, I was super excited about the soloists, like the stars. I was super excited about the conductor. I didn't even look at who the director was. I didn't care and I wasn't interested. And I would show up at the first rehearsal and the director would be introduced and start telling us where we're going to stand and where we're going to move and at what time we're going to move. And that's my expectation was is that the director was going to tell me where to stand. Yeah. <laughs> Get the tarmac cones out and point the plane yeah. to its parking space. There's, there's some bigger issues afoot too. At a large union opera house, which Anchorage is not, there's rules about what everybody can do. So a chorus couldn't necessarily do everything that I had the chorus in Elixir of Love do. Like and, the camera, do like manage equipment, move things around, like doing all that kind of stuff. Because that, that right. was awesome. Thanks. And I loved it too. But at the Met, for instance, that would have incurred a whole bunch of extra time and overtime and people touching things that they're not supposed to touch. And there's some limitations that are put into place by the system. Now, the Met can afford an entirely different kind of show than Anchorage Opera can afford to do. They would have monetized budget for that in a different way. But I think that I'm just, I am happily seeing opera in general move away from a lot of dependence on great stage pictures being replicated and basically like traffic control singers standing and doing almost nothing i think there's this sort of general consideration that maybe oh opera singers can't act either that's frankly a load of crap and it's not giving any due credit to the people who have so much talent and potential on stage I just think that there's an urgency to push to make more out of what we can do with this very flexible, very dynamic, alive version of opera that's possible. I want to transition to talking about new opera. You guys are doing Scalia Ginsburg at the first weekend in February. I believe February 2nd to 4th. And this is a, by opera standards, a very new opera, 10 years old, roughly. I have a a recording of the composer and librettist. What's his name? Derek Wong. (laughs) Derek Wong. And he's going to explain a little bit about his approach to the opera and how he wrote it. So maybe this isn't high drama. Maybe this is a buddy comedy. And on top of that, I thought, well, how do I want to tell this story? And again, I let the law inspire me. I let my subject influence the medium. And I thought, well, why not portray in music and words what it's like to grapple with the hard questions of law? And so there became a way of entering the story and telling it, which I like to call operatic precedent. And the way operatic precedent worked was that just as in legal scholarship, every statement you make has to be sourced to some kind of authority, I figured, wouldn't it be fun and interesting if everything these characters said to each other in the opera were somehow sourced to something they had actually said or written? And what I learned from this journey was to unlock the artistry in unlikely places. Not to apply preconceived notions of what I thought an opera should be, or what I thought the law should be, or even what I thought about the relationship uh, between the justices, or what I thought of the justices themselves. I learned to let the subject tell me the story that it wanted heard. And I love that clip because I think it shows so much of what I 
imagine that you're bringing to this, which is finding the story in unexpected places, trying to make the experience relevant to today in a way that doing a piece from 200 years ago in a traditional way may not be. Yeah. What I think is so interesting, this is a great piece to see after this conversation. And we're bringing in one of my favorite directors, Josh Shaw, to lead this production. Josh has been a firebrand for everything that I have been talking about, wanting to rethink what makes opera possible, wanting to rethink the connection between the performers and the audience, constantly thinking about the audience's takeaway, because ultimately that's who it's for. This piece is, it's, it is incredibly well-crafted. And what I really admire about it is the lyrics are just sickly clever. Like it's sort of, and he was pulling them all from things that Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg had said or published. Or- exactly. And it's so to be able not only to put that kind of legalese or constitutional language into a libretto in the first place and have it all find a rhyme scheme that is somewhat reasonable, but at the same time, make it discernible for those of us that aren't legal scholars to understand what's being discussed and why that's important to the plot. And at the same time, the whole thing ends up being light and funny, and it has an emotional impact right when you don't expect it. It makes you leave the theater thinking, oh, there's really something to this. Having Always been a fan of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's. I left having great admiration for Antonin Scalia. When I first got the project, of course, I just, I needed to study up. I I directed the show myself in September of this last year. And I'm surprised that you got someone else to direct it. If you've directed it before and you have a vision for the piece, why not direct it yourself? Um, That's a great question. Some of it has to do with the transition this year. So I'm contractually obligated to direct one show a year. And while there might be years where I choose to direct more than that, I think it's really important to have more voices than mine represented dramatically. But this was also, Reed Smith, my predecessor, did most of the contracting for this year. I had contracted Josh before I was even remotely in the picture. And I can't imagine a better fit for this piece. Having directed it myself, I think Josh is uniquely cut out for this. I just can't help but think that you might be the person who makes him the most nervous since he's directing a show that you just directed. I'm going to make him listen to this. So just to become a good friend. And we just listened to all 300 of these auditions in New York together. Anger Opera was in a consortium with Pacific Opera Project, which is Josh's company. It's great to have a friend in this business. I think Josh could care less about being nervous, whether or not like I've done it or not, which speaks to... Josh's integrity and his talents. He has carved out a truly unique experience for himself while building one of the most unique and prosperous opera companies in the United States. And, um, you know, in that sense, he has nothing but my full support. I hope in my like producer role for this show, I can give him exactly the show that he wants. And back to the show itself, I do want to play a clip of Ruth Bader Ginsburg describing the plot of Scalia Ginsburg. The plot of Scalia Ginsburg is roughly based on the magic flute. (laughs) And Scalia is locked up in a dark room. He's being punished for excessive dissenting. (laughs) I then emerge through a glass ceiling. (laughs) Uh, To to help him pass the tests he needs to pass to get out of the dark room. 
any character left over from Don Giovanni, the commentatory, <laughs> is astonished. He said, he's your enemy. Why would you want to help him? And I sing, he's not my en- enemy, he's my dear friend. And then we sing a wonderful duet <laughs> that goes, we are different, we are one. I'll just say that when researching for this interview, I was wondering if Antonin Scalia had known about it. And he did, because the opera was performed for an audience of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia at the U.S. Supreme Court. So I just, for audiences who come to hear it, they'll know that both the figures on stage, no longer with us, were able to see this. And And I think Antonin Scalia wanted to be in the piece himself. He did. To play himself. Oh my God. Did you ever hear him sing? No, I didn't. Funny. And then ironically, Peter Scott Drackley, who's coming to sing Alfredo in the cast for La Traviata, which is the show after Scalia Ginsburg, was one of the original Scalia's and did perform the piece for, at least for Ginsburg, that Ginsburg saw him do it. Who's going to be the Scalia that we hear? Jane Suarez, wonderful tenor, who's going to be singing that. Rachel Policar, who sung with Anchorage Opera before and has made a meal out of singing Ginsburg, is coming up as Ginsburg. And Jesus Vicente Murillo, who sang in the production um, that I was directing in September as the commentator, is just brilliant and funny and sings it just so incredibly well. When you mentioned that you left seeing the opera the first time as respecting Antonin Scalia, that I think in the clip that we just heard of Ruth Bader Ginsburg talking about that, that they weren't enemies, that they were close friends. And, you know, I, I had been wanting to interview you for the podcast, not really thinking about what the next show would be, but Talk about perfect timing to interview you about Scalia Ginsburg two weeks before our session starts in Juno and thinking about working together. Scalia Ginsburg is absolutely relevant and it's absolutely the opera that we should be talking about as Alaska starts its legislative session. A hundred percent. We talk about putting up a photo of a Gazan child in a Turandot production. Here's an opera that manages to be funny while also saying there's common ground for everybody. It doesn't matter that these people, Ginsburg and Scalia, couldn't have been much further apart in terms of what their political views were. But what I admire in both of them is that they both had reasons that they could argue that were reasonable as to why they held those views in the first place. And that they both had the respect and intelligence to know that when those views were challenged, that you didn't necessarily put up a wall, but you opened your ears. Now, did that always mean that one side caved and the other didn't? No. And the opera goes really into the idea that the whole reason that our system of democracy works is because there's tension. And out of that tension, even if it drives us nuts sometimes, out of that tension comes this thing that has sustained our union ever since 1776. I can't wait to see it. I'll say that knowing that Antonin Scalia was a big fan of opera and that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a big fan of opera, that in and of itself tells us that opera is a nonpartisan endeavor for sure. No No kidding. kidding. Hey, last thing. If there's folks listening who would like to learn more about opera, how do you recommend people get started? Come to the opera. Come see our our opera. If if you can't afford it, give us a call. AnchorageOpera.org. Secretopera.org. Gotcha. Hey, Ben Robinson, thanks you so much for being on the podcast today. Andrew, it's a pleasure to speak with you. 
The singers you heard today were in order Luciano Pavarotti, Martina Arroyo, Juan Diego Flores, and Alex Lucian. I have links to the YouTube videos I pulled those from in the show notes, as well as links to Derek Wong's TED Talk and the Ruth Bader Ginsburg interview that I excerpted. Thank you to you, our listeners. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us. To contact me, email eastanchoragebookclub at gmail.com.